Today, we will talk about third and fourth wave feminism, some conservative objections, we'll do our daily shout out, and a product review. Welcome to Wonderfully Woke. Hello, and welcome to Wonderfully Woke. The last episode we did was about first and second wave feminism. I wanted to do a short history lesson on those and try to build a foundation for today's episode. Now, I've been thinking about the last episode all day, and overall, I just want to make something clear. The point of our little mini-series here is not to attack feminism or transgenderism. I know that when I started, I said I thought, overall, fourth wave feminism is a negative thing. And I realized that starting with a conclusion is not always the best method. But I've never seen anything come out of fourth wave feminism that I thought wasn't either A, negative from the start, or B, it becomes negative very quickly. So I just want to find out how fourth wave feminism became fourth wave feminism and talk about some of the frustrations that conservatives have with it. So let's get started. So Britannica was a source that we used last episode. I think they do good research, so we're going to use them again. They have a page about third wave feminism with some information on fourth wave feminism as well. It's kind of a long page, so I'm going to jump around a little bit, but we'll do a short history lesson. So on their page, they say, the third wave of feminism emerged in the mid-1990s. It was led by so-called Generation Xers who, born in 1960 in the 70s in the developed world, came of age in a media-saturated and culturally and economically diverse milieu. Although they benefited significantly from the legal rights and protections that had been obtained by first and second wave feminists, they also critiqued the positions and what they felt was unfinished work of second wave feminism. Third Wave Direct Action Corporation, organized in 1992, became in 1997 the Third Wave Foundation, dedicated to supporting groups and individuals working towards gender, racial, economic, and social justice. Both were founded by, among others, Rebecca Walker, the daughter of the novelist and second waver Alice Walker. Influenced by the postmodernist movement in the academy, third wave feminists sought to question, reclaim, and redefine the ideas, words, and media that have transmitted ideas about womanhood, gender, beauty, sexuality, femininity, masculinity, and other things. There was a decided shift in perceptions of gender with the notion that there are some characteristics that are strictly male and others that are strictly female, giving way to the concept of a gender continuum. From this perspective, each person is seen as possessing, expressing, and suppressing the full range of traits that had previously been associated with one gender or the other. For third wave feminists, therefore, sexual liberation, a major goal of second wave feminism, was expanded to mean a process of first becoming conscious of the ways one's gender identity and sexuality have been shaped by society and then intentionally constructed and becoming free to express one's authentic gender identity. In fourth wave feminism, arguably even more significant was the Me Too movement, which was launched in 2006 in the United States to assist survivors of sexual violence, especially females of color. 
The campaign gained widespread attention in 2017 after it was revealed that film mogul Harvey Weinstein had for years sexually harassed and assaulted women in the industry with impunity. Victims of sexual assault or assault around the world and of all ethnicities began sharing their experiences on social media using the hashtag MeToo. The movement grew over the coming months to bring condemnation to dozens of powerful men in politics, business, entertainment, and the news media. Okay, so we've got a lot to unpack here, so we'll take it one step at a time. So according to Britannica, third wave feminists were and are influenced by postmodernism in academia to redefine terms and ideas like womanhood, gender, beauty, sexuality, femininity, and masculinity. So what's postmodernism? Well, Britannica defines that as well. It says, postmodernism is largely a reaction against the intellectual assumptions and values of the modern period in the history of Western philosophy, roughly the 17th through 19th century. Indeed, many of the doctrines characteristically associated with postmodernism can fairly be described as the straightforward denial of general philosophical viewpoints that were taken for granted during the 18th century Enlightenment, though they were not unique to that period. Postmodernists deny that there are aspects of reality that are objective, that there are statements about reality that are objectively true or objectively false, that it is even possible to have knowledge of such statements, that it is possible for human beings to know some things with certainty, and that there are objective or absolute moral values. Reality, knowledge, and value are constructed by discourses Hence, they can vary with them. This means that the discourse of modern science, when considered apart from the evidential standards internal to it, has no greater purchase on the truth than do alternate perspectives. So, now we start to see a full picture of the waves of feminism, or at least a more full picture. So, we see the first wave surrounding voting rights and suffrage, with a clearly divine, defined goal to gain the right to vote. We then see second wave feminism surrounding sexual liberation and some more, I would say, loosely defined goals regarding civil rights with women, work segregation, based on being male or female could be one of those loosely defined goals to try and do away with that. Then we see third wave feminism expand on that and take the postmodern view. Now we see a redefining of terms like femininity and masculinity. Like the vast majority of postmodernists, third wavers are going to generally back away pretty strongly from the idea of objective truth, especially when dealing with the definitions of masculinity and femininity. The movement is now at this point, I would say, definitely more of a culture war than a war over changing any specific laws. And finally, we arrive at fourth wave feminism, or really what I would call woke feminism. This is where we see things like the Me Too movement, hashtag believe all women, or something like all survivors should be believed, and a shifting in the culture war to more heavily focus on things like quote-unquote rape culture, toxic masculinity, and also the gender wage gap. Now, it's fair to say the gender wage gap has been debated and that's been around for a while. It's something that was in third wave feminism and second wave feminism as well. Now we're a little more schooled than we were before on the history of feminism. That was the point of laying the foundation. I wanted to go through the history of it and really understand where it came from and how it got to where it is today. Now, I want to take a little bit of time and go through some issues I think conservatives have with feminism today. I'll do some mansplaining in typical cisgender fashion. So let's start with the Me Too movement and rape culture. 
I think the problem that conservatives have, generally speaking, with the Me Too movement, the Me Too movement originally, I don't think there's an issue at all, anybody would say, there's an issue with trying to stop or shed light on acts of sexual deviancy like Harvey Weinstein and, and, you know, sexual assault, everything. I think everyone's on board with that. But I think the problem is some of the larger talk that we have on rape culture. I think when it comes to rape culture, the frustration is it seems like feminists want to have it both ways so that they can kind of turn things around and blame everyone else. So what I mean by that is that we often see people saying something like this. You know, sexual harassment, it's not unique to Hollywood or that industry. It's not about the lack of objective morals in our culture. No, it's men. It's about men. Men have gone wrong. It's men's fault. It's toxic masculinity. It's American society. And it's a power struggle between men and women. And that's really frustrating to a lot of us because third and fourth wave feminist ideas about sexual freedom and sexual liberation, the truth is those are largely at fault for what's going on today because those ideals have not protected women at all. They have only served to make sex transactional in our country, which greatly endangers women. If sex isn't sacred, then neither is a woman's body. Sexual liber liberation is a garbage philosophy. There is no human being ever in the history of the world that was ever designed to make their sexuality transactional. So then these third and fourth wave feminists want to turn this back on all of us and say, well, that it's got to be men. Men aren't doing their part. Like, for example, with rape culture. I hear a lot of talk from third and fourth wave feminists to men that's, well, you just don't want to call out rape culture. But rape culture never really gets defined. It's just kind of a vague statement. It's a vague term. What is rape culture? There is absolutely no culture in the United States which celebrates rape. Legally speaking, our justice system prosecutes rapists and we put them in a cage for the majority of their life. And the justice system's not perfect. We don't always get everything right. And yes, sometimes people do heinous crimes and somehow they get off. But there are no laws in this country which even come close to condoning rape. And then culturally, do you know anyone who celebrates rape? I sure don't. That's even why in prison, oftentimes a rapist ends up getting killed by other inmates because even in the, in the circles of people that are in prison, in the circles of people who are inmates, rape is still considered a heinous crime to the point where, especially if there's a minor involved, a lot of times rapists go to jail and end up getting killed by other inmates. So I'm, I'm certainly fine, by the way, with rapists being castrated or giving life imprisonment. You know, like everyone else. I don't think anybody would have a problem with rapists being thrown in jail. I don't know anyone that celebrates rape. I've never even heard of anyone trying to push any kind of culture which celebrates rape. And I think as kind of a side note, it, it kind of speaks to the fact of the reason that conservatives kind of look at don't rape classes as a really laughable, silly thing. As if you could actually take a boy who thinks rape is totally cool, no problem with it, it's funny, it's great, it's the best, and you could tell him, hey, raping a woman is bad and wrong. And they're just going to be like, oh my God, I've never thought about it that way. It's just not going to happen. That's not how these things work. But I digress. The point is that on one hand, if a woman wants to trade her body for a role in a movie, well, then that's just because there's a power imbalance and men have all the power. 
But if a woman wants to trade her body for a role in a movie or run around and embrace casual sex, if I criticize her, well, then suddenly it's, how dare you slut shame me? So which is it? Is transactional sex and sexual liberation good or bad? Is a woman's body something she can simply just trade and exchange for fame or fortune, or is it sacred? This is why conservatives get frustrated with this stuff. From our perspective, it seems a lot like woke feminists are always shifting their ground so that they can somehow turn the blame back on someone else, never trying to look at the actual problems with the feminist ideals regarding how women should live and sex. And then as for toxic masculinity, I would simply say that I agree that men have more aggression than women, but there's nothing wrong with masculinity. False masculinity is the kind of chest pounding, oh yeah, I hooked up with so many girls last week, bro, that type of thing, and that is also 100% garbage, but I hate the term toxic masculinity because the very term itself shifts the blame onto masculinity. True biblical masculinity protects women. It allows men to embrace their adventurous, danger-seeking side in a healthy, godly way, and it also teaches that women are sacred, their bodies are sacred, and as men, we should be protecting them and make sure they're taken care of. I think the very woke attack on all masculinity, which pushes things like the idea that Harry Styles posing on the cover of a magazine wearing a dress is somehow brave and redefining masculinity. It's going to solve the problem of toxic masculinity. The problem is none of this is designed to lift men up or help them in any way. It's all designed to tear them down. Whether people know it or not, it is designed to tear men down. And I also think a very subtle attack against God comes into play here. If masculinity is toxic, then so is Jesus, because in every way, Jesus was truly and is truly masculine. Okay, I think we'll stop there for now because I want to take an entire episode and talk about the gender wage gap, and I don't want to try to cram too much into one episode. So that means it is time for The Daily Shoutout. Okay, the daily shout out today goes to Cameron Haynes. Cameron Haynes is the author of Backcountry Bowhunting and Bowhunting Trophy Blacktail. He's an athlete, a husband, a father, and I've learned something really important from him, and this is something that I think a lot of people, this is the reason Cameron Haynes is such an incredible figure culturally when it comes to men and hunting and bowhunting and that kind of thing, because he really pushes the athletic side of it. The side of he gets up. I mean, I I see this guy every day on Instagram or some kind of social media, always up in the morning, 4 a.m., hitting the road. Doesn't matter if it's icy outside or whatever. Cameron Haynes is always on the ball. And that type of thing is really inspirational. It's one of the things that I've always hated about being a bow hunter is that I think there's a stereotype with hunters that like we're just kind of like these like fat guys that sit in a tree and shoot a deer when they come by. And I really like Cameron Haynes because Cameron Haynes shows if you want to bow hunt and be really good at it, there there's an athletic side too. First off, Cameron Haynes is shredded, but there's a certain level of 
you're going to have to be in good enough shape to get out there and do hiking, sometimes a lot of hiking through the woods, scouting. It's not necessarily easy to climb up into a tree either, even if you have a ladder stand or a tree stand. And this is where a lot of Cameron Haynes' athleticism becomes so inspirational. And there's actually another thing too, and I, this is kind of vague. I'm not sure exactly how to explain this, but when it comes to bow hunting, part of you know being a really good archer and being in really good physical condition, it just kind of lends itself to this bigger idea that if we're going to go and take that precious gift of flesh and fur, it's important that we be worthy of that gift. We should be good at what we do. We should be ethical. We should have a strong body and a sound mind to go out and get the job done. And for that reason, Cameron Haynes is one of the most inspirational people out there. Daily shout out today. Gotta go to Cam Haynes. Check him out. Uh, he's on YouTube. He's, he's everywhere. Just get on Google and look up Cameron Haynes. Now, it is time for a new segment. This podcast was recorded and published by Anchor. Anchor is the best when it comes to production, publication, and monetization. If you want to know more, go to anchor.fm for details or check out the Anchor app in the App Store.